All right, hopefully you're there in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 11. That's our text into chapter 12, verse 6. The topic, the Bible illustrates the truth that Jesus is both the ancestor and the descendant of Israel's King David by calling him the root and the shoot. The title of our message, I am root. Oh, you clever one. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do enjoy coming together as a fellowship of believers. Uh, It's such a joy to have you here, Lord, in our midst, the way you describe yourself in the book of the Revelation. Lord, those of us that are Christians, our bodies are your temple, the temple of the Spirit. Our church is the temple of the Spirit. And we want to rejoice today, Lord, and give praise. Lord, if there's anyone here that's not a believer, and we know that there probably is, Lord, and maybe several, we pray that you would powerfully work in their hearts by your grace, Lord, freeing their will so that they can choose Christ, have their sins forgiven, and be aware of the fact that they're going to live forever. Help us as we work through these verses, Lord, to be encouraged and strengthened and educated, We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. What does POTUS do all day? I don't mean President Joe Biden specifically. I mean, what is a day in the life of the President of the United States really like? Obviously, every day is going to be a little bit different. Let's pick a president and take a look at his Palm Pilot. The 43rd President of the United States woke up at 5 a.m. every day and would be in the Oval Office for early morning briefings. I go to work a little before 7 a.m. and I expect everybody to show up on time when I have a meeting, George W. Bush said in 2008. At midday, Bush would take a break for a workout, usually jogging or cycling, which was then followed by lunch. He's reported to be a fast eater who wanted to get back to work. Around 5.30 or 6 p.m., he would wrap up his workday and make his way home. Bed was generally no later than 10 Bush thought it important to get eight hours of sleep. And I wonder if there ever was a day like that uh, where he was able to even follow that schedule. You see these guys, they go in with dark hair and they come out gray. Uh, I mean, it's, it takes its toll on you. Isaiah takes us to work with King Jesus in the future kingdom of God on earth. We wonder what will we be doing in the future kingdom? But since we're going to be serving the Lord in our resurrected or raptured bodies, it would be better asked, what is Jesus going to be doing? Because we will be following suit. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, King Jesus will spread his righteousness. And number two, King Jesus will savor your praises. Let's take a look at his righteousness in the 11th chapter. The future kingdom of God on earth is also called the millennial kingdom or the millennium because it lasts for a solid 1,000 years. We are currently in the church age that ends when Jesus resurrects and raptures believers. The rapture could happen at any moment, and it definitely will occur before the time of Jacob's trouble. Sometime after the rapture, the time of Jacob's trouble lasts for seven years. It is known by its more popular name, the Great Tribulation. At the end of those seven years, Jesus returns in his second coming, And when he does, he establishes the kingdom on earth, the millennium. And so that's the time frame that we're working in as we open chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, 
and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The International Standard Version of the Bible reads like this, A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch will bear fruit from its roots. Jesse was King David's father, and this illustrates the fact that the king would be both the ancestor and the descendant of David. And so the promised king existed before David was born, but he was himself born in the line of David after David. It's no mystery who this describes. Jesus called himself the root and the offspring of David in the book of the Revelation. He is the only person in human history who is both the uh, ancestor and the descendant of King David and who is the millennial king. Jews immediately recognize this as the fulfillment of what is called the Davidic covenant. God promised David and Israel that the Messiah would come from his line and would establish the millennial kingdom. Isaiah is going to be showing us the future. This passage is a day in the life of King Jesus. And so verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The hymn Isaiah describes is Jesus, God's anointed, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. He was God from eternity. Then in virgin birth, he added humanity to his deity, and now he is fully God and fully human, the unique God-man forever. The Spirit of the Lord is God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Jesus will be aided by God the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not that he can't rule without help. He's not in over his head. There's a precious cooperative intimacy between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit throughout these verses. They're not three gods, but one God eternally existing in three persons, and they act harmoniously. God the Holy Spirit is named before any words or works the Lord performs. So we're looking at the millennium, and then before anything said about what Jesus does, we see that he has the Spirit. If Jesus will be in constant contact and communion with the Spirit in his God-man body in the future, how much more do we need the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives now, in our unredeemed bodies of flesh, when there's so much spiritual warfare? Christians in the church age have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit the moment they are born again. Our problem is that we inhabit unredeemed bodies with a propensity to sin. God, the Holy Spirit, enables us to obey God's word. He empowers us to serve the Lord. But there's always this struggle between the spirit and the flesh. When the first century church needed men to serve widows, the apostle Peter instructed they choose men who were, he said, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Why specify they needed to be full of the Holy Spirit if all believers enjoy his indwelling? Not all believers yield to the Holy Spirit's indwelling, many preferring the wisdom of the world or their own wisdom. Uh, It's a constant trap, peril, danger for the church and for the leaders of the church to fall back into fleshly human practices. Not not evil practices by any means, but just things that you would do, uh, you know, out in the world. Uh, For example, uh, you know, you want to... You want to be fiscally responsible, obviously, right? And, and it, the Lord's money and the Lord's, uh, you know, stuff. Uh, but, and so you think, well, we'd better run everything the way a, top, you know, a Fortune 500 company runs things. 
And, and God would say, yeah, that's, I've never done that. You know, I mean, so you don't want to be foolish or weird, but you want to seek the Lord. I remember we used to own a piece of land, uh, Fargo and Glacier. Uh, that was our land. You know, we were going to build on it. It didn't work out. But God used that land as collateral so that we could get into this building, which is now paid for, uh, right? And, yeah. And so anyway, that was a great thing. So then we had the land left over, and we thought, well, we should sell the land. And uh, we were hassling with that as a board, you know, talking about selling the land and what to do and stuff. And one of our elders shook us up because he said, hey, what if God wants us to give that land to another church? And I quickly said, he doesn't. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Suppose I had come up here on a Sunday morning, you know, two years after we'd been here in the building and say, hey, great news for you. This land that's worth whatever it's worth, we just gave it to another church. And and I think your reaction would be pleasant and excited until you started to think about it a little. And then you'd think, maybe somebody should talk to the elders about, you know, how how are decisions being made? Uh, What's actually going on here? And so that's the idea. We prefer our own wisdom to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And it's not like the Holy Spirit's always going to take to have us do crazy things, even though that was pretty much his game plan in the New Testament. Uh, but uh, I, I think you understand that. David's son, Solomon, was encouraged in a dream to ask for whatever he wanted from God. He asked for wisdom to rule God's people. God, the Holy Spirit, has many attributes, certainly more than these six that are mentioned here. But these six especially are necessary for millennial kingdom rule, uh, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. I mean, let's say, you know, that we could call the spirit the spirit of prayer, right? It might be something you need in your life at some time, the spirit of prayer or the spirit of fellowship or the spirit of a million different things. And so he's not limited to these six things. But if you're going to rule the universe, one of the things you're going to have to have is wisdom. And so that's what's going on here. Verse 3, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Jesus wants his subjects to see his relationship with God the Father. He thus acts in the fear of the Lord, interdependent upon the Father. His judgments are not only from his ears and eyes, they involve the Father and the Spirit. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. On this day in the life of Jesus, the king is out among the poor and the meek. Now, the millennium cannot be a perfect utopia, not as long as there are human beings in mortal bodies. Jesus, however, will immediately act to protect the poor and the powerless and the meek. His very words and breath slay the wicked wherever he finds them. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. In a very odd uh, translation, the message version says, each morning he'll put on sturdy work clothes and boots and build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. They're trying to capture this idea of Jesus building and doing so with faithfulness and with righteousness. The millennium comes immediately after the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. The earth is what? Devastated. Uh, there's a passage that says if, if Jesus hadn't come when he did, the earth would have been destroyed. And so it's, it's in bad, bad shape. It's like whatever disaster you can think of all over the planet at once. 
And so the Lord is not going to simply snap his fingers and restore everything. There's going to be a lot of building going on. Jesus, as we would say, will get his hands dirty building alongside us. You ever think about, that's kind of, sometimes I like to just think about these things and think, what if you were building beside Jesus, working on the Habitat of Humanity house or something, right? Oh, man, the Lord stopped by. He's working, and is he going to, you know, lean over? Is he a lot of fun? Is he going to say, hey, Gene, go find me a board stretcher. This one's a little bit short. (laughs) Sure, sure, Jesus. And then you get over there and say, hey, Kevin, can you help me find a board stretcher? Oh, the Lord's pulling your leg. And I go, oh, man. Building, we will be doing this building with the Lord. Verse six, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, calf and the young lion, and they're fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. You ever see these things on the internet where these weird animals cross over? You know, the duck has a cat on its back, or, you know, the bear is playing with something or whatever. Right next to it is the uh, when animals attack videos. But anyway... Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so Jesus pauses in his work day in order to take a field trip to the King of Beasts Park. Uh, And so he's got all these kids, and he says, kids, go go out there and stick your arms in the cobra's den and uh, grab those little guys and see how they're doing and stuff. And all these animals are laying around. I can't think of a better way of communicating that there will be universal peace on earth than to show that the wild beasts will get along with one another and with us. Jesus doesn't only restore uh, us, he restores creation. And we see that he intended for animals to uh, get along with people and vice versa. Uh, and, of course, they don't today. You're always reading about some, you know, somebody getting mauled by a cougar or something like that. And so what a remarkable time that would be. Of course, you know what this means. There will be no hunting, no killing. You will be a vegetarian or a fruitarian. Not just in the millennium. It's not like at the end you say, okay, let's get that eight-point buck or whatever. But uh, this is a forever thing. Uh, so you can either start now. Uh, to like rhubarb or just get your fill of meat. Just eat all the meat you can. Be an Atkins guy, you know. Some of you are on the Atkins millennial diet. Uh, leading up to the millennium, you're going to eat hundreds of pounds of, of red meat. Of course, you'll die, but, uh, you know. Verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, we understand God's word is alive and powerful. And if I can say this, it will be even more powerful in the millennium in that nothing and no one will oppose its reaching the entire planet. And so it's always just as powerful, but now, you know, for centuries and for whatever, people have tried to halt it from getting around the planet where it can do its work. In the millennium, that uh, no one will oppose it, and so it will be an earth full of the knowledge of the Lord, and that kind of an earth is going to undergo many marvelous changes simply because of that. For example, later in Isaiah, we read, waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Uh, They don't need to send an irrigation crew in there. Uh, You know, some changes will just happen spontaneously because creation worships the Lord. One commentator said, if God had never breathed life into humanity, he would still receive worship and praise. 
His perfection provokes the heavens to declare, the sky to proclaim, the rocks to cry out, the trees to clap, and the waters to roar the praises of his glory. Some of you realize it's Palm Sunday, and uh, you were hoping beyond hope that I would do a Palm Sunday message, right? Well, this is it. Uh, Because you remember on Palm Sunday, they were all praising the Lord, right, as he came into Jerusalem, and the religious leaders said, get these people to shut up. Uh, And Jesus said, if they weren't praising me, the very rocks would praise me. And that's what we are talking about here. So Palm Sunday message finished. (laughs) Verse 10, and in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse thing reminds us how bleak the prospect of God keeping his promise to the Jews really was. It seemed that their lineage illustrated by a mighty tree, had been cut down and was only a dead stump. But God was going to bring a shoot from its roots that exceeded all of its former glory, and that would be King Jesus. Gentiles are everyone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham. Like a banner, and hopefully not like one of those creepy banners with the arms that you see all over the place, right? I, I purposely don't go into businesses that have those things. I don't know what it is. They just scare me. I have nightmares about it. Jesus is going to draw Gentiles from all over the world to Jerusalem. It says his resting place in my version, but it's better understood as Jesus giving spiritual rest. Now, it's kind of funny that all of the world's religions promise a kind of spiritual rest or a spiritual attainment, but you have to work so hard to get there uh, that you're exhausted. I was watching a TV the other day, and they had a special on about, uh, I can't pronounce it, but let me try Sokun Hin Butsu. Sokun Hun Bitsu. Sokun Hun Butsu. Ha. Sokun Hun Butsu. Have you ever heard of that? Probably not since I can't pronounce it. But it's a kind of Buddhist mummy. In Japan, the term refers to the practice of Buddhist monks observing asceticism to the point of death and entering mummification while alive. And so what happens is they they show this whole thing and this whole process. They still do it today. If you think you're spiritual, you sign up for this. Shubukan or whatever it is, and you start into these practices of, of fasting and all of the crazy things that monks do, and it gets worse and worse and worse until you're buried underground and different things. And if you survive all of these different levels, and by survive, I mean they look into this coffin that you're in and you're still breathing, then you've achieved Shobukutan and they bury you alive. And once you're dead, And mummified, they take you out and they put you on display as a spiritual individual. And so if if I'm a monk in that temple and I go, instead of that stained glass window, I see Joe Friday or whatever, you know, my friend who's mummified. I'm thinking, I'm not going to do that. So how spiritual can I be? I mean, if that's what spiritual is. And to me, it's the perfect view of all religions. Because all religions are into the flesh And that's the kind of, you know, that's the epitome of being into the flesh is to be mummified thinking that you're spiritual. And so Jesus offers you rest. If you're not a believer here today, you are under a heavy, heavy burden of sin. Jesus is the only person who has the shoulders broad enough to take upon them your sin and the sins of the whole world. Following Jesus is not a burden. It is a rest. It is a relief. And so Uh, Let him into your heart today. Verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time, 
to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. A major feature of the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble will be the Antichrist attempting to exterminate all Jews. They will disperse over the planet and receive help from many Gentile nations. The great tribulation ends when Jesus returns in his second coming. A saved remnant of dispersed Jews will be drawn by Jesus to Jerusalem from all over the earth in that day. He says here it is the second time he has done it. When was the first? Well, some commentators immediately point to the exodus of Egypt, where God brought his people out and eventually into the promised land. Some commentators say it was when the Jews returned after their 70-year captivity in Babylon. Those were remarkable gatherings of God's people to the Holy Land, but not from all corners of the earth. It would seem that the regathering Isaiah is speaking of is one that is happening now in the modern state of Israel, as many Jews are returning from all over the world. It is part of the stage setting for the seven years. Verse 12, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. The nation of Israel had split in two after King Solomon, David's son and successor, died. The northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim was conquered by the Assyrians. Judah in the south lasted longer, eventually overrun by the Romans in 70 AD. Their split has never been healed, but it will be in the millennium. They will again be one nation under their God, Israel. Verse 14, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon shall obey them. Remember, people in the millennium will not be perfect. These verses portray almost a SWAT action against any rebellion that the Lord comes against. It's like, hey, we, Ammon is, you know, stirring things up, so let's get down there right now. All right, you know, with our riot gear and stuff. No, just, you remember, Jesus, all he has to do is talk and things change. So there's going to be a lot of things going on in the millennium I had never thought about before. Let me stop here and answer a question you might have. Who are these people who inhabit the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies? Well, they're going to be the survivors of the time of Jacob's trouble, the Great Tribulation. When Jesus returns in his second coming, believers who survived that time of Jacob's trouble are separated from unbelievers to become the first citizens of the kingdom. They remain in their mortal bodies. The children they bear and the children that their children bear, they will be sinners in need of salvation a multitude of them will reject the Lord, believe it or not. There will be opposition to Jesus during the millennium and especially at the very end of the thousand years. And so there will be uh, things to do in terms of quelling little rebellions. Verse 15, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river. The river is always the Euphrates in the Bible. And strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So Jesus is going to uh, supernaturally alter the the geography of the mouth of the Nile River and the uh, Euphrates River to make the journey to Jerusalem easier. And it's likened to the miracle of crossing the Red Sea. Here's a good check for churches. 
Do we make it easier or harder for sinners to be saved? Do we make it easier or harder for a saint to grow in the Lord and be sanctified? Uh, you know, since we're in flesh, like I said before, and, and subject to our own wisdom and our own understanding, we should ask these questions all the time. Uh, you know, hopefully we would never be a church that makes it hard for a sinner to get saved. Uh, that, you know, that we wouldn't act as though we don't want sinners here, uh, you know, and, and that, that they would be welcome here to hear the gospel. And Christians as well, that we wouldn't put undue burdens on Christians, people who come, you know, to be ministered to and to be lifted up in the Lord. You know, I, I come here to be encouraged in the Lord and to be blessed by you and the things that are going on here. And so we, we don't need all the burdens that we could put on one another. Uh, typically, I go to finances because that's something that, you know, everybody can understand. But so many times out in the religious world, in the Christian world, you're put under a burden, a financial burden. You're never giving enough. It's impossible for you to give enough for some people, you know, and everything is uh, the next fundraiser and the next fundraiser. And, and be, you begin to think everything revolves around money and that without the right amount of money, you can't do any ministry. And, and it's always a burden. You know, and people start looking at your shoes. They start looking at your shirts. They start saying, well, what are you spending on your wardrobe there, buddy? And uh, maybe that money should belong to the Lord. And then it gets into a thing like, well, how much do you give? Do you give, you know, and, and so you know, that is a burden. People should be able to come freely and learn about the Lord and then go out freely and share the Lord. Are we living in the most idolatrous, immoral times the nations have ever known? <laughs> We can make a case for yes if you factor in technology and all the things that we're able to do with technology uh, enabling us to sin. And, you know, it's bad, but it's not as bad as it could be and as bad as it will be. Believe it or not, evil is still being restrained on our planet. The Apostle Paul wrote, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This restrainer is someone well-known to the church whose power is great enough to hold back the devil. It is, in fact, God the Holy Spirit. He will be taken out of the way before the Antichrist can be revealed. This can only refer to the rapture of the church. Individually, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, churches are, and the church on earth is the temple of the Holy Spirit. His restraining of sin is removed when he is removed with the church. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has no ministry anymore on the earth. He had ministry in the Old Testament before there was a church, right? And so, but the idea is that we actually are restraining evil. So as much as people want to tell you the church is failing, and as much as churches are failing, you know, because Jesus, when he wrote to the seven churches, he had corrections for them. We shouldn't think that it's all or nothing, either you're, you know, succeeding or failing. What's actually going on? But the church isn't failing to the point that, uh, we're not restraining evil. But just think of how awful it's going to be then when the church is removed and evil is rampant. Until our removal, we spread righteousness by our very presence where God has put us, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12, King Jesus savors your praise. This day in the life of King Jesus in the millennium continues with a concert performance for an audience of one. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you, Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. This time of Jacob's trouble takes Jews through the great tribulation the world has ever known, disciplining them, drawing them to salvation. 
The Bible says that fully two-thirds of the Jews of the tribulation earth will be killed. One-third, however, will survive, and they will be welcomed by uh, Jesus into the kingdom. Now, I've been referring lately, not just today, but all uh, for a few weeks now, to the great tribulation by the name Jeremiah gave it, the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, it has several other names. We've hit on great tribulation because that seems the easiest for us in the West, and Jesus said that it would be a time of great tribulation. But I like the time of Jacob's trouble because we are reminded in that name the major purpose of the future great tribulation is for God to uh, finish his dealings with the nation of Israel and the unconditional promises he made to the uh, physical descendants of Abraham. It's not like he's not dealing with other people. There are other you know, nations on the earth as well, but it is a special time, sometimes called Daniel's 70th week, where God is going to finish his dealings with Israel and all Israel at the end of it, it says, will be saved. And so that one-third remnant that comes through will be saved. It's important for the devil to try and kill all Israel because it's his last attempt to undermine God. If he can kill all the Jews, then God is not able to keep his promise. And so he'll go after them hard, but the Lord protects them and one-third will be saved. So let's talk about, uh, let's, let's get into this time of Jacob's trouble. Be a conversation starter too. And people talk about the great tribulation, say, oh, you mean the time of Jacob's trouble. I love stuff like that. Verse 2, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. That'd be a good song. Do we sing that here? We do? I do. I don't know about you. Verse 2, I just read. Maybe you've met someone who meant a lot to you, who inspired you. That's the thing I see happening here. Jesus, you saved me, and now I can trust you and never be afraid. You give me strength not simply to endure, but to enjoy, so I sing to you. Now every day I'm being saved, sanctified, to become a little more like you. Verse 3, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The Lord, of course, is living water. His wells are overabundant to save all who are thirsty, to keep us satisfied, and to overflow into the lives of others. Albert Barnes writes, partake abundantly of the mercies of salvation. It is free, overflowing, refreshing, like waters to weary pilgrims in the desert, and that their partaking of it would be with joy. It fills the soul with happiness, as the discovery of an abundant fountain or a well in the desert fills the thirsty pilgrim with rejoicing. Verse 4, in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. This seems like both an altar call and a call to evangelize. Call upon his name to save. He's worthy to be praised. Then go declare his deeds to the peoples, that is, to the Gentile nations who need salvation. Always portray him as exalted, with no fault, the name above all names, the king above all kings. Verse 5, sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. The word excellent is misused by us. We like to compliment someone by saying to others, oh, he does excellent work. No matter how excellent something may seem, everything in our world is deteriorating, decaying, dying. Everything the Lord has done is excellent. His plan of salvation reverses this curse that is on our original earth. Our future and the future creation will be living and growing without decay and death. 
Jesus' ministry during the millennium will make, you his, uh, will make his excellence known in all the earth. What do you think his most excellent work is? Well, it's you. It's, it's you. It's taking a sinner and being able to declare that sinner righteous and then taking you through a lifetime of becoming like Jesus to finally present you faultless before the throne of God in your future glorified body. And, and the body, by the way, not just the body, but your, the whole person. You'll, people think, oh, we're going to return to Eden. No, we're going to be so much better off than Eden. Eden was a testing ground where Adam, a free will being, and Eve, a free will being, were able to exercise their will against God. But what I see happening, what you see happening in the Bible, in taking us to the future, is that we will again be free will beings, have total free will, but we will be unable to sin. And you say, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense, Gene. Well, sure it does. Because God is a free will being who is unable to sin. And we will be like God. And so we will enjoy the perfect fellowship that God intended. And all of this stuff that leads up to it is necessary in order to get back to that place and to go forward. And so what a glory that will be. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. As the little Einsteins might say, crescendo. This day in the life of King Jesus is how the church will spend our days in the future kingdom. If this is what he's going to be doing, and we're going to be ruling and reigning with him, then that's what we'll be doing. Don't you know, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, saints will judge the world. Revelation 3, 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Every day that the Lord does not come back is another day to ready yourself for his coming. Check your Palm Pilot and see what your day looks like and make sure it's filled with the knowledge of the Lord.